Welcome to Free For All, an episode-by-episode podcast about one of the most endlessly fascinating television shows ever made, The Prisoner. Each week we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 17 episodes of The Prisoner. I'm Chris Bainbridge, Senior Lecturer in Broadcast and Creative Media, and I'm also a Prisoner devotee. And I'm Kai Ross, a film writer, restaurateur, and Chris's mate, which is how I got this gig. (laughs) Something I missed for many, many years, and I've only just noticed watching this episode, when number six is in the hospital, he has this dream Mm. about the events that have led up to where he is. Yes. And the dialogue spoken by number two in the council chamber is different. Oh, in his dream? Yeah. How, he, how is it? And he compliments and congratulates number six, yeah, rather than bangs the gavel and, and attacks him. Yeah, that scene is, it changes the narrative slightly. Yeah. So that's obviously by design from the village of manipulating his thought processes. And you see that visualised. Yeah. Because it is a different mood. Yeah. I mean, this, there, is, there is something about this episode that's, that is quite intriguing going talking about this, is that to a certain extent, number six isn't really in this episode much because he's essentially brainwashed. From the moment he stands up from that chair... Well, the real number six, our number six. Our number yes. six is basically yeah. uh, uh, this walking cipher, mm-hmm. which is quite an interesting sort of take on it. You need to take number six's true intention out and replace it with something else in order to highlight the falseness and hypocrisy of politics. Yes. It becomes his alter ego. It becomes, even though he's not intentionally doing that, it's, it's, it's pro- he's being programmed to behave like that, hence why he tries to break it. It kind of shows you that double, that two-facedness sometimes of politics. Yeah, and it, it kind of makes sense a little bit, the speedboat chase, because he's essentially briefly snapped out of it. Mm. Uh, that you can still, even even under brainwashing conditions, he's still capable of kind of no, this isn't and breaking breaking free from that. And then he when he's actually mini meltdown, doesn't he? In some scenes, he looks genuinely terrified in this in this episode at various points. And then when he's slapped out of it mm. at the end, literally, um, he's suddenly he's back to number six, and it's like, oh, my God, this this is this is my chance. Let's go, we can go, we can go. And then there's that moment, and he's shouting, he's saying, we're free to go, we're free to go, we're free to go, free to go! <laughs> and, of course, no one moves, yes. which I think is probably the ultimate comment that McGowan had to make, really. Well, I think that's true with, with society in general anyway. Yeah, and I think, I think that was his, his point. We are, we are sort of ovine. Kind of cattle mentality well, that we have. Well, it's just this sort of the blind acceptance. I mean, by, mm. he's, he's laid out his, his, what McGowan thinks is his belief about how politics and how it's how futile it is, how how corrupt and how appalling and oppressive it is, and then at the end, he sort of his final uh, commentary is, and look at us, look at us all, just blindly accepting this nonsense. Did you notice the? I wouldn't say pandering, but the American dialogue has resurfaced. Go on. You know. Oh, uh, I think I did. Come on. Which one? Now this happens a few times. It happens in "It's Your Funeral," where one of the residents hasn't got the credits to buy. Candy. Candy. Yes. Now, we don't really use that term in the UK. No. We use confectionery or the most common one being I sweets. Ha- I, I have kids, so I can, I can, I'm afraid, testify that you, you got Americans, you guys have won. <laughs> They're saying candy now. Uh, but it, the word is sweets. <laughs> yeah. uh, over here we say sweets. Sweets is the, is, is the more um, common term, isn't it? Yes. McGowan would never have said candy. But candy is a very American term. Term. Now, in this episode, when number six is on the boat, 
the stone boat, and he's saying, winter, spring... So, yes, yeah, some are fall. Or fall. Again, another term that is not really used in Britain. No, we, we've... Uh, We'd say I, autumn. I didn't understand what fall meant until I, I used to get Premiere magazine, and yeah. they, they would have the ultimate fall movie preview mm. for all the films coming out in the autumn. And I had no what the hell. Fall? Maybe that's just my own experience. But I've, lyrically, I've when, when he reads that line, it, it, it sounds better. Winter, spring, summer, or autumn. Is, is it a lyric? No, no, I mean lyrically. No, I mean, no, I mean, no, but uh, is, is it an actual lyric from a song? Yes, many, there's many songs that Winter, have that as a lyric. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean... Winter, spring, summer, fall, all you got to do is call. Yeah, uh, <laughs> of course it is. It's... Um, Carol King. Carol King Tapestry. Mm. Yeah. Uh, You've got a friend. Yeah. But it was, it, that's a whole Greatest Hits album. But that's after. That's 1971. So, ah, this because, is 1966. Uh, yeah. Your winter, spring, summer or autumn, it just... Doesn't have the same I don't think. Quality, I don't think anyone's ever said that. Yeah. Winter, spring, summer or autumn. Yes. <laughs> it's, uh, it doesn't scan. Because in Britain we would say spring, summer, autumn, winter. But they start with winter, spring, summer or fall. Maybe that's where Carol Kane nicked it from. Maybe. She was a big prisoner fan. Well, <laughs> she's gone up in my estimation since she was already pretty high. <laughs> But I'm guessing it's it's probably a more of an American kind of parlance anyway. It's something that is probably more common to America than it is to Britain. I am assuming so. I am absolutely not the expert on this, but I mean, I've never heard anyone say, uh, "Hey, isn't it great this fall? The uh, the uh, the leaves start to turn." Mm. The what? Yeah. Autumn, you mean? I'm guessing this is just it, it's been written because I mean, obviously McGowan, you know, was born in America. Mm. He was quite international. In fact, he was born in America. He was, had Irish parents. Irish family background, he lived in Sheffield. You've got a distinct clash of cultures. Yes. You know, and of course, if his parents lived in America, they would have picked up uh, American-isms and, you know, celebrations, traditions maybe as well. So, yeah. possibly from his American background. Yeah, but also, I mean, it's I, I, Lou Grabe was an international sort of seller of these things and there would have been a, possibly an eye to the market. So we're now at the Cat and Mouse yeah. bar club, members club. This is an odd uh, scene for me because it seems to me that number six is actually drunk. Mm. But he, he's not because they don't serve alcohol. There's this revolting sort of alcohol. Yes. Uh, holders. But he plays the whole scene and, and he's addled. So is this a part of the brainwashing? I would, I would assume so because, like you say, yeah, there's no... It's like the Star Trek um, conceit, isn't it? The synthahol. <laughs> is that it tastes like alcohol it looks like it smells like but it doesn't get you drunk and I think it's no Romulan ale it's not no <laughs> <laughs> or Aldabran brandy right. um, but yeah I, I think it's a clash it's a uh, he's fighting against this programming yes yeah I mean the whole point of the scene is he wants to get hammered mm. but he's acting drunk and it's kind of a curious thing mm. But it's strange. This, am I right? This is the only time you actually see the pub. There's I a bar. I think so, yeah. It's the only time we see the cat and mouse. It's not very busy. Maybe it's a Wednesday. Yeah. But this also quite nicely leads us on to a new feature. Supporting, supporting artist, artist of, of the, the week. week. And, of course, it's the lady dancing. <laughs> with her massive wide brim floppy hat. Yes. Behind, she's doing this kind of uncomfortable grand dance that you would see at a wedding. It's pretty good. I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm, don't write her off. Those, those are moves right there. I can imagine, you know, she's a supporting artist. They're in a club. What do we do in a club? She gets up, has a bit of a jig, and she's there. It's a bit of soft focus because she's in the background, but I, I just love her moves. I, I expected, I, I'd imagine she probably turned around expecting to see everyone else dancing yeah. as well, but no, it was just her. <laughs> oh, right. I thought. Sorry, I thought you were, we were going to dance. 
<laughs> but she's great. Yeah, she makes that scene. <laughs> What I um, also notice in this, if you look at Britain in the 1960s, and a good kind of reference point for Britain, how it was in the 1960s, are watching some of the ITC shows. Yeah. You know, when we watch that Randland Hopkirk, you can see how quiet Piccadilly Circus is compared to today. <laughs> you know, what the billboards are like and, and what things look like inside restaurants and pubs and... And clubs and all the pubs in Randall Hopkirk seem to be these lovely British English country pubs with the horse brass. Yes, it's this, every time um, Steed ends up going to a pub, it's almost exactly. I'm sure the barman's exactly. I'm sure the barman usually ends up to be Colin Sharp. But Do, how, are they still? When's the last time I went to London? Are they still advertising Skull on, <laughs> in Piccadilly Circus? They seem to be doing that for and TDK tapes, wasn't TDK it? TDK tapes, yeah, that was another one. Is that, are we going to take that down? We're still paying a fortune for that. Yeah. Do we even still make tapes? That's Piccadilly Circus for you. <laughs> but um, in this scene, there's an automated band. There's a drum kit set up. Oh, yeah, that was a very odd moment, wasn't it? Yeah. And the, but the music's playing, but there's no actual band. But there are speakers on the wall. Yeah. Which are pumping out the, the music. But there's an automated band, automated musicians... I did think that that might have been a bit of sort of a, a metaphor going on, that there are instruments but no band, but the music yeah. plays on anyway. It was a curious case. I did think, or am I just seeing things into it? But then I thought, actually, no, that's quite an elaborate thing to think, set up. I think it is, and I think there is meaning behind it. Yeah. Um, again, it's this predicting where technology will be going. You know, why pay for live musicians? Thankfully, yeah. <laughs> thankfully live music is still alive, um, but probably not as, as popular as it was in the 60s and 70s. You only have to go to a, a pub to see a band to see, you know, it's not packed out generally. You know, a couple of people sipping their uh, whiskies or their yeah. bitter. That's another thing you'd see. playing Proud Mary in the background. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, it is something you would see. A lot of ITC, a lot of stuff from the 60s, shots of pubs and stuff, there'd usually be a couple of guys in... Very sort of um, sort of turtlenecks sort yes. of Aaron sweaters playing um, playing sort of folk music in yeah. most pubs, yeah. or uh, which which is exactly how it should be, frankly. But, but I take this to mean it's the automation of live music. Yes, which we do see to a certain extent. He predicted Muzak. I don't know. No, maybe not Muzak, but kind of taking the soul out of live performance. Yeah, and we're doing that a lot with the prisoner. Is we're creating technology that doesn't exist, but where it could potentially go. So instead of having a band there, because that would have been easy to just get a couple of people on guitars and drums and bass, but no, they put the little statues that are knocking about as the musicians. Mm. And it's almost like one of those American... I've forgotten the name of the chain, but there's an American chain where they have these automated farm animals playing <laughs> instruments like animatronics. And it's almost like that to a certain degree. But is it saying music itself will be automated in the future? We won't need people to learn songs, to write songs, to play songs. We can just have that as an automated process. And we've got that to a certain extent now. Yeah. Sequencing and programming and sampling. You know, people are making millions out of sampling from this and generating something on this keyboard or an algorithm on this. There was a, somebody has actually created an algorithm that creates every single melody that could ever be written and has put it out there so nobody can claim copyright or sue other people. So I've taken this from the uh, independent newspaper. A musician and lawyer has used an algorithm to generate every possible melody in an attempt to end music copyright lawsuit claims. Working with programmer Noah Rubin, Damien Real 
bought software capable of generating 300,000 melodies each second, creating a catalogue of 68 billion eight-note melodies. That is that's, horrifying. That's from the independents, so to credit them. Again, it's automation of the process. It's automation of songwriting. <sighs> Not just performance, because anybody can play a record or in, in a pub, you know, play some music. But this is actual taking the human element and replacing it with technology. And there's a lot of that in The Prisoner. Yeah. Replacing the human element and being automated. Yeah, I think that goes back to his scepticism about what is defined as progress, because something like that is defined as progress. Absolutely. But it's, it's not in any way, shape or form progress. But you only have to look at shows like The X Factor. But yeah, he's, he says that line, gin, whiskey, vodka, looks the same, tastes the same, no alcohol, no mm. musicians. Oh my God, he predicted calibre. <laughs> the, the world's least drinkable beer. Yes. But again, with the if you put the drink, if you put the alcohol and the musicians together, you have no substance Yeah. on either. Well, no wonder the pub's quiet. But the only thing real in there yeah. is the dancer. Yeah. And fair play to her. She, she, she gives it some. She gives it some. Now, he starts quoting some, I don't know if they're lyrics or poetry, and I've, I've tried to research this. But I can't find a mention of it. No. Let me be, never let me go. I am here, I am here for you. That kind of, as he's leaving the cat and mouse. Would that have anything to do with the sort of the Ishiguro book, the uh, Never Let Me Go? Would he have based, would he have... Was that, that written in there? Was that written by no, 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 it was written later. But would, right. would he have used that quote that uh, got the title for his book from a previously existing well, poem? There, there was a song written called Abba Father, Let Me Be. Oh, yes. But that was written years after The Prisoner. Uh, well, Abba's uh, Latin for father, isn't it? Anyway, yeah, it's so. Abba, Fa- yeah, Abba Father, Let Me Go. It's a Christian song. Now, I'm wondering whether this song is, is not taken from The Prisoner because it does share a lot of the of similarity with the lyrics, but maybe there's more of a traditional, maybe a Christian poem or a hymn or a psalm or a vesper that exists in the past that McGowan is drawing from. Yeah. And it's more of a religious sentiment than a pop music sentiment. No, I suspect you're right. I think, it, I, mean, for, I mean, for a start, he would have had to, it, it was probably something that was out of copyright, just on yes, a practical level. Yes, yeah, yeah. But that would make sense from, a, from a, like a traditional Christian hymn or vesper. Well, I mean, he was very religious, so that's something yes. he probably would have been aware of as well. Yeah. But I couldn't, like I say, I couldn't really find it. The only, the only thing I could find was that song, which uses very, well, it's the same wording. Yeah. But I'm, I don't think a, a Christian songwriter would have watched The Prisoner and gone, oh, I'm going to write a song about that, <laughs> you know? I, I think they both have, like the House of the Rising Sun. Yes. You know, the animals and... Dylan. Bob Dylan. Did, Dylan. Did, yeah. yeah. But uh, Alan Price did the arrangement, didn't he, for the animals. But they all come from an original song which is lost to time if who actually wrote it. And maybe it's one of those. Yeah, Trad R. Trad R. By. Yes. It's <laughs> <laughs> not uncommon, though, is no, it? No, no, there's a lot of that in the 60s. Yeah. And Scarborough Fair, the same. I think Trad so. R. By. Uh, it's a traditional Simon. piece, yeah. isn't it? I think the original didn't have those beautiful two-part harmonies. No, which is what it was lacking. Yeah. And thence to the cave... Well, yeah, there's a, there's a line around this time where he, he, he talks about rejoining the flock in good time. 
Yeah, uh, who? Number two? Number six. Because, and, well, and, also number two. Because it, it's mirrored here, isn't it? Yeah. Um, because we've just talked about this song and the potential Christian overtones. And when he's talking about rejoining the flock mm. and you've got the shepherd and the flock kind of motif of uh, Christianity. Yeah. Is, is, is he trying to tie in Christianity or elements of Christianity within this story as well? In terms of ethics, can you be pure yes. in politics? Or do you have the semblance of being pure and then you go off and commit adultery or sex scandals or whatever? No, it's, it's, it's something I didn't even pick up on at all when I was watching it. But, I mean, yeah, like you say, McGowan was American by birth. He would have had American political uh, interests. Mm. And um, he would have noticed, the, even back then, the idea of religion and politics mixing in a but way I, that it probably didn't... I think in the 60s, though, I think there was still a lot more interest or attendance for church. In in this country? In this country. Yes, yes, in you're Britain. right. Yeah. It seems to have died off a little bit. You see now churches and church halls being sold off, demolished, chapels being converted into houses and homes and things like that. And that's quite common now yeah. in the UK. And I think that's down to the, the, the reduction in people attending church services. But but that's that's... I don't think that's a new thing. That's, that's quite a common thing. No. That, I mean, that would have been a very contentious thing mm. uh, to put into an episode back in 1967, yes. though. So if, if he was trying to make some point, I, I'd imagine he was trying to do that under the cover well, of... Well, I think that line, rejoin the flock in good time, just highlights the double lives some, that some politicians have. Returning to the flock is something that um, number two says when he, in this mm. marvellous scene in the cave with the, uh, the guy making moonshine. Yeah. And, and, uh, John Casabon. Is it? Yeah. Who appears in uh, Checkmate, doesn't he? Oh, for... Oh, yes. <laughs> you, you're so much better at this than me. <laughs> but that's a, a great scene. The lovely mm. sort of um, whisk off of the of the sheet and there's drunk number two. And it's quite interesting, again, it's like it's a, a, a restaging of the breakfast scene. Another, another way to get them to sort of empathise with each other is to get them both hammered. Yeah, and, and there's that little telling moment where number two says... Do you see that man there? Yeah. Yes. Cheers. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers. 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 It's just something that drunk people do, isn't it? But I mean, talking about Casabon, I mean, he was a, another ITC mm. kind of player. regular. He, he'd been in the Avengers, um, Department S. He went on to do Department S as a chemist, ironically. <laughs> um, and also Randall and Hopkirk. He played a doctor. So he seemed to have the, a bit like uh, Colin Gordon. It's like, oh, I'll get Casabon. If we need a scientist or a doctor, let's get Casabon. He's the man. He, he knows his stuff. I think the ITZ, ITC Spotlight book was only about sort of three pages long. <laughs> yeah, the same people. <laughs> He'd also been in four episodes of Danger Man, Casabon. So he knew McGoohan as well. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the chalkboard, I wonder if anybody has actually... <laughs> I'm, I'm not a scientist, but I was looking at that and I was saying, Is that, I wonder, and I bet people have, the- have ripped apart that formula. Right, this is where you come in, listeners. Do you know of <laughs> anyone who has? Or if you, just, let's, let's, let's find out exactly what was on that blackboard. Well, there's another line I wanted to talk about here, is that number two talks about managing the village's exports. Oh, yeah. Now, he says that in, in one of the speeches, doesn't he, to the, the populace. Yes. But what exports? What is the village producing that it's exporting? And it's, is it chemical-based? Well... Th- does this lead into what Casabon or Casabon's character is doing, the scientist is doing in this cave? Because they say every week we come down, we wipe it off, we photograph it, wipe it off, and he can start again. Yeah. 
What is he creating in that village? And does that tie in with the village's exports? Or is it just complete nonsense? Because, mm. in fact, once... They're just trying to keep him happy. Because seconds later, when number six is, is drugged and falls over, and the sheet is ripped away in this marvellous scene, and you yeah. really see uh, number two in all his manipulative glory, the whole thing is staged. So maybe it, maybe he's just t- just talking nonsense. Maybe he's, he could, he's just seeing some uh, drawings and sketches on a board and sort of makes some stuff up. He's just better keep him talking until the uh, the drug kicks in and he passes out again. Maybe that's what the villagers exporting. Uh-huh. Red or something. <laughs> some, kind of, some kind of drug that knocks people out. Then to be used in other ITC shows. Yeah. When they need to knock somebody out. Or yeah, maybe maybe ecstasy. Maybe maybe it's going to take a few while. By the summer of 1988, we'll crack this. Like Narcos season, whatever, <laughs> around the village. You know? <laughs> Who knows? But again, it's it, it's it's a fascinating little moment. Yeah, you can explore and think. Well, what what does that formula? Like you say, yeah. If anybody knows, please enlighten us. Any scientists? Yeah, that'd be lovely. I love it. it turned out to be the formula for a cordless phone. <laughs> We're exporting these. I was going to say that, and then he wins the election, which we knew was going to happen, didn't we? Yes. But but what I think is quite quite creepy and eerie is that he goes through the motions in silence. Yes. And he's doing all the arm gestures and the. Well, do you know what that made? Do you know what that made me think? You know when you see in, in when there's an election going on and and, you, and the politicians they're always surrounded by these people cheering away yes. and holding the things and the, the teamsters uh, yeah all that kind of stuff anyone holding a placard and che- yeah. when they're going ecstatic and then whoever wins Downing Street is absolutely full of all these people mm. cheering and crying and so, but listen the second that anyone actually gets into power uh, most of the country then immediately hates them yes and and wants them to fail and sort of typical and just kind of the cynicism kicks in almost yeah. as soon as they walk straight through the door and that's what that kind of reminded me of he actually as soon as he wins it's not just silence they're staring at him and, think, then, and, then they, and then they walk off I think a lot of people like being part of the democratic process they like knowing that they have a say but then like you say once that person is elected uh, it's more of the same the, the immediate thing is this person is going to let me down and destroy Again. everything and I, and I hate him and I think uh-huh. I mean that's quite common today you know you talk to people and say oh I'm not going to vote well, why are you not going to vote well it's going to be the same anyway it doesn't matter who we get it. I hear that a lot from people mm. a lot of people are kind of politically disconnected because in the last seven years in the UK we've had so many different elections and referenda and Various things, and it just felt at one point that we were going to the polling station every other week. Oh, another one! Yeah, that famous BBC interview, (laughs) wasn't it? (laughs) But you can see why people would get disassociated with the process, and and people quite rightly get fed up or they become or they they, they felt that they were meaningless players in somebody else's game. Yes, which is the core almost of. Yeah, we're not we're not we're not choosing a new leader as is our direct uh, electoral democratic right. We're actually being you asked to sort of support your plan or whatever. This, this yeah. isn't ugh. almost like the useful idiots uh, idea. Something we talked about before about the scarf. Do you mm. notice in this episode when number two, the outgoing number two, Eric Portman's number two, leaves? He leaves the scarf and the shooting stick on the table. Yeah, as like this is a uniform. Right? Yeah. Here you go, old chap. This is now your uniform. <laughs> yes, I, th- I thought that was a lovely touch, and it was. It did I did? I was trying to work out whether the shooting stick was just a Guy Dolman thing, mm. but no. 
and I think Portland that has it. <laughs> yeah, and I think that the shooting stick is such a well again another bit of hunting metaphor uh, yes. imagery for you. Yeah. One thing I've put down is uh, the the quote: "The older you get, the more you notice that people are winging it." <laughs> Um, and of course when number six becomes number two he basically just starts pushing every button going and doesn't know what's going on and and just reminded me of that quote but to lead up to that point number 58 starts to kind of bring him out of that programming doesn't she yes tick 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 and then that that great shot of her as well with all the uh, the spinning background Mm. behind her and she's staring at it Looking very much like Marion Cotillard, by the way. Maybe yes. that's why. I, yeah. Maybe that's why that's I love Marion. Like I think that's why I like Marion Cotillard because yeah. she reminds me of Rachel Herbert. But the tick tick has that uh, elements of hypnosis, doesn't it? Yes, yeah. And then yeah, the and tick, then tick, tick, I'll tick. snap you out of it, literally. And she slaps him, gives him a good old whack. Properly, yeah. yeah. Breaks uh, him out of that stupor. You're free to go. <laughs> free to go. <laughs> free to go. <laughs> He's definitely desperate. And then that absolutely brilliant shot of Rachel Herbert standing there. Mm. The camera sort of zooms into her. and it Gives her that authority as well. The, yeah, the a, a re- very cinematic shot. Yeah. And then, oh, God, it's her. How did I not see this? Yeah. Again, a bit of a sort of, again, I didn't see it coming. Yeah, you ever learn? Yeah. In, in beautiful, beautiful. Yes. Won't you ever learn? Yeah. Oh, it's great stuff. Great yeah. stuff. And uh, a fantastic I, twist. Again. A, fa- a fantastic twist. And just totally, there, there's, uh, this is an episode without hope. Mm. A, not a drop of it. Well, there's, there's also... A, I, I was thinking about this. There's also allusions to what's been happening in the UK as well, where you'd have, you've would you got Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, but you've also got somebody like Dominic Cummings, who is there as a advisor. It's almost more than that, really. Um, but I suppose, yeah. A lot of people saw him as a Machiavellian character, pulling the strings. Mm. Whether that's true or not is, is up for debate. But this number two, this new number two, or 58 being number two, has almost been pulling the strings, or she's been complicit in the duplicity throughout the episode. Yeah. Do we know if she is the real number two, or and that number two is basically a stooge? Yeah, because we see her in the scarf, don't we? Yeah, yeah. But what I, what I mean is, was this her idea, or is this something they cooked up between them? I don't know. I don't know. I think, well, it suggests that she was always going to be the incumbent number two. Yeah. So but isn't isn't the game's rigged? The game's rigged from the beginning. But isn't that lovely that this basically everything, the whole thing, is just simply cooked up? But do you not think as well that at, for the time, a woman in authority would be something the audience wouldn't have expected anyway? I mean, we're going back to the Star Trek pilot where Major Barrett was a first officer on the Enterprise, and the, the network said no one will buy having a, a female first officer. I guess you're right. I mean, we're, we're, Barbara Castle, was she in by this point? I mean, it was v- highly unusual. Mm. I mean, there were some banks that didn't let women into into, into the building until oh, really? the 1970s. You know, it's we're talking about an era where women's rights still have a long way to go. Mm. And I think that is such a, a, a progressive twist, is that number two's a woman. And we explore that again later, of course, don't we, in Dance of the Dead. Mm. But our first female number two. It's a twist you don't see coming because it's something that society is not quite used to. Yeah, and deadly. And, of course, <laughs> precedes Margaret Thatcher by... Ten, uh, 12, 12 years. Yeah. We've got to talk about the men sitting looking at Rover. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a, a glorious bit well, of... Uh, people call this the cult of Rover. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to suggest something else. Go on. Are they controlling Rover? Ooh, 
Is that the Rover Control Hub? Well, what are, what are they wearing on their heads? They were goggles, goggles aren't they? Yeah. Well, the sunglasses, aren't they? I, I, I couldn't, couldn't quite... They I've, look like sunglasses. I've still only got the uh, the old DVD, and you've got the other one with a pin-sharp Blu-ray. But, yeah, they're wearing like, the sunglasses, but they may not be sunglasses. They might have some other... They might have heads-up displays in them. We don't know. But um, maybe they're controlling Rover. Or maybe they're worshipping Rover. Am I misremembering this, to use a modern phrase, uh, but is Rover inside the chair in this shot? No. As he is in uh, Once Upon a Time? He's um, he's in, like, a little alcove. I mean, it, it, what's interesting is that it's it's right next to Number Two's office. Yeah. And it's a strange thing to have. I mean, actually, that supports your theory a little bit. I know you've only just come up with this theory. <laughs> that's a great theory. That's why though. we're here. But it is. I mean, that's just, that's basically the the room off the the, the head mm. um, the head office. It's, it, it's it's a little bit like Lost, but we know the village kind of shifts location. Or does it? Or maybe the village doesn't shift location. It doesn't matter where the village is, because it's everywhere. Yeah. Rather than just being a specific location. You know, it's off the port. It's off the coast of Tunisia or off the coast of Morocco or wherever. It doesn't really matter. The geographics of the prisoner are irrelevant because it can be everywhere. Hmm. So even the internal dimensions of, of the village don't always make sense. We sh- oh, I wonder if McGowan actually has said anything about this. Because it just comes out of nowhere as well, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. And the, the, even they sort of, what do you want? We're looking at the ball. Yeah. Now, these guys are in, in, in boiler suits and wearing sunglasses. So I'm wondering whether there's, this is some kind of manipulation of Rover, maybe like a drone flyer. Well, do you know, it's never explained how yeah. they, they actually get Rover to, to work. No. Like I say, a lot of people think they're worshipping Rover, but it doesn't really seem like some kind of... They're not on their knees. It's not a shrine. No. In fact, the floor's covered in straw. Yeah. <laughs> so are they, are they having an annual general meeting with Rover? He's the head of area, head of department. For, <laughs> he's actually, he's actually for just caves. He's actually just sat with them. Yeah, they're all they're having a, a tea break. It's a break. Yeah, you chased anyone down? Yeah, smothered him. But it must mean something. Yeah, it has to have some meaning. Why would they go to that trouble of costuming and setting that scene in that alcove with Rover? Yeah, and I think as you've established as well, I just there's nothing in this scene that's in this episode that's here by accident. No. Listening to Bernard Williams, any opportunity to reuse footage, mm. you know, and, and whether it's, you know, Frank Ma going up a, a walkway or whatever, and you can insert that into another episode, or Peter Swanick saying, Orange alert. Or Orange the, alert. The this, this, this is, I think, the first time you see Rover going back mm. after his job is done. It's a reverse uh, yeah, I know, shot, but, isn't but it? I always yeah. remember, and they were saying about the music, the music's quite hammer-hobbery yeah. with that, but I always remember thinking, that's really quite cool. But um, again, 58 is then revealed to be our new number two. Yes. And it donning the, the apparel of number two, to, as if we hadn't worked it out. <laughs> <laughs> but she makes a, a comment to Portman's outgoing number two. Give my regards to the homeland. Yeah, mm. homeland. Mm. Not really a term we would use in Britain. I suppose. If you were going back to Britain in yes. the 60s, or even during the World War One or World War Two era, you might even say, give my regards to Blighty. Yeah, the old country. The old country. Uh, never the homeland. homeland. Is that more of a sort of Soviet um, Eastern Bloc kind of way of talking? I'm yeah, just kind of thinking of the, Germ- the... If Germany would be the, mo- the fatherland, yeah. the Vaterland, and then Russia would be the motherland. So it's like I know. I'm trying to think of where that where that expression would have would fit into I don't really the lexicon any, of that age. Well, I don't really think there's any point kind of trying to pinpoint. It, it's a term that suggests otherness, yeah, of another place, and is deliberately vague as well. Yes, 
If she, if, point, yeah, if she'd have said, give her to the, to the old country. I mean, yeah. Oh, Britain, you mean? Or Blighty. Yeah. You know. <laughs> and they've deliberately tried to separate that, haven't they? Yes. Who's the two? So what do we know about Eric Portman? Eric Portman uh, is a fine actor, actually. I think he, arguably he might even be classed as you know, certainly one of the, the better actors mm. to play to play number two. Uh, a very long and distinguished career, which didn't last much longer than this um, no. episode. I think he no. died Completely two years later. But I think his, he's probably most famous for his early work with Powell and Pressburger. Yes. A Canterbury Tale, which is... <laughs> A very, very odd film, a beautiful pastoral film, obviously uh, with odes to, to, uh, to Chaucer. But this odd, very odd plot about a glue man running around <laughs> pouring glue in people's hair. And one of our aircraft is missing, I think he yeah, was in that. Yeah. And he was in a very, very good film, very popular film of theirs called 49th Parallel, mm-hmm. where about some Germans... And this is shot during the war as well. Mm-hmm. Germans who they're crash land in Canada, I think, and have to he has to lead his men across the Can- uh, Canadian plains. And there's a fantastic scene where they it's a community, I think, a Hutterite community mm-hmm. they're called. Um, and he doesn't play it as pure evil; he plays it as quite a sort of brave kind of soldier type. And then when he's in this community, he stands up and gives this ridiculous speech about how great Nazism and how you guys should all join us. And the beautiful Anton Walbrook stands up and presages his speech that he gives in Paul and Pressburger's um, Colonel Blimp when he's mm. playing Theo. He stands up and it just tells this, this guy, you have, you, have, you have no place here. He was quite the film actor, really, wasn't he? Uh, he was quite a name, Eric Portman. Portman. He was, yeah. he was, I, mean, I think it, there was something about the way he says guest starring Eric Portman. It's almost like a, a bit of a coup. Yeah. But there's a lot about that performance in Force Ninth Parallel that I th- I saw reflected in this one because he is playing not just a, a non-threatening, but it's positively sort of on the same side, even though at the heart it's pure evil. Mm. Like this character in Force Ninth Parallel, uh, he he may he may he may appear like to be a rugged captain or whatever it is. But, but there's he, no kind of I mean this number two performance, he, he's quite ambivalent really throughout. There's I've, no sinister side to it. No, no, it's, it's not just Sam but he's just he's delightful. He and you can actually see number six cracking and sort of well, I, I quite like this man because he's obviously yeah. he's like the he's like the He's the, quite genuine. He's like the the lovely headmaster I never yes. had at school. I had a terrible one. But do you think just, because he's one of the oldest number twos? Yes. Because he, he's in his sixties mm. in this performance. Uh, and and ironically he doesn't actually look He's actually 39 years old in this film, <laughs> in this episode. Did you know he has a blue plaque in Halifax? Oh, does he? Yeah. I mean, he must have so been that's a, where he was from. He must have been a much big, bigger name. He's, he's, I mean, he's often confused with Eric Porter. Yes. yes. Uh, who has nothing to do with this, but who was in, um, obviously, the Foresight Saga and mm. The Hands of the Ripper, co-starring um, oh, um, the, splendid, the splendid Jane Merrow, yeah. who will turn up uh, in a future episode. Apparently he was a little bit of a of a matinee idol in his youth. Oh, when you see see um, black and whites of his uh, of him in the thirties, he's quite quite cuts quite the dash. Yeah, um, like you said, one of his finer roles. If I think there was only, he only did another couple of performances after the prisoner. What a performance to go out on! on oh, it's a beautiful performance because he is this this wonderful avuncular sort of friendly Mister Chips type. Yeah. But actually, of course, he's it's all a lie. Mm. He is actually one of the best manipulators. But it's what we were saying about the game being rigged. Mm. He's one of the better players of the game. Yes. In that it's effortless for him. 
in fact, you, you could you could get the sense actually this is his game. Mm. I this is my idea. General, I thought it would be a wonderful idea. Let's pretend we have elections. Yeah. Let's get him that way. And what happens when he wins? It doesn't matter. We're just going to break him. Yeah. There's actually something quite chillingly sadistic yeah. about this particular one because he's so he's so lovely. You've raised number sixes hopes and aspirations have been raised to a point where he thinks he can manipulate the situation to his own favour and then it's brutally ripped away from him again. I mean, what, and yeah, I mean, what the plan is is essentially to give him hope mm. and that look in his eyes when we were talking about when you can see him, we talked about before, when he thinks, I, oh, I can, I can use this to my own yeah. end and win and what happens when we win? It's all, it's all a lie. Yeah. The, whole, he's, he's, the, whole, the game is designed to let him win and then rip the rug under from under his feet. Yeah. Uh, it's not even to get the information out of him at this point. They don't, they don't, I don't think they try. It's just, it, it's the village asserting its authority and dominance. It's absolute it's dominance, Setting its yeah. rules of the game devastatingly. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, um, but he's, he's, uh, he's, he's a wonderful, great actor, Portman, I think. But what's it, another thing, that's, <laughs> you'll love this, is that we have three number twos. Mm. Three twos are six. <laughs> I just thought I'd point that out. <laughs> but we've got Portman, we've got Herbert, and of course McGowan yes. in his brief stint as number two in this episode. And I think it's the only episode where we have three number twos, unless you count... Um, uh, it's, it's your, your funeral. funeral. But they're never really a step. They're only they could be, utilised. They could be a, villagers dressed up. Yes, we don't really know if they're number twos. Mm. What about Rachel Herbert? I, I saw her in an episode of The Professionals quite recently, so I think, I think that's where her career headed. I can't speak with any authority on this. You'll, you'll probably be better at this. I mean, Rachel Herbert's television credits prior to the prison. She had been in um, one episode of Danger Man yeah. in 1965. But she wasn't a well-known actress. Um, she only had something like 10 performance credits to her name. By that point? By that point. Yeah. So, like many of these people, I'm guessing, you know, with um, you know, Rose Tobias Shaw probably knew her from... Uh, from Danger Man, and McGowan had worked with her yeah. in Danger Man. That's probably where there's they a lot used to cast of, Yeah, there's a lot of element of uh, sort of the safety of familiarity with the way that McGowan sort of uh, got everyone together on this. I don't think he wanted anything in the way of new, unpredictable talent. He wanted people he knew and could yeah. depend on. Yeah, and uh, and Maybe took a shine to, maybe liked their performance. Well, yes, and I think that's exactly what he saw in Rachel Herbert. I thought she was great. I mean, she, she cause, again, do you see that twist? Didn't see that no, coming. Didn't see it coming because mainly because she was so brilliant playing this this gobbledygook spe- uh, spewing, uh, charming, very sort of very gauche and uh, childlike. And of course, she was just yeah. She is quite childlike in this, isn't it? She gets excited. For, uh, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she she did appear three times in the long running uh, police drama No Hiding Place. Oh yes, which probably isn't very familiar with with modern day views. It's not f- that familiar. I've heard of it. I don't think I can recall it though. That ran from well, that was quite long actually, fifty nine to sixty seven, um, and had people like Johnny Briggs, you know, Mike Bolton yeah, yeah, yeah. from right. uh, Coronation Street in it. Yeah, I think he was one of the leads. He he was in pretty much every episode, and Raymond Francis, so you may remember. Yeah. But uh, that was probably her biggest exposure, apart from Danger Man. I'm very surprised it didn't sort of catapult her into something a little bit more of a big league. Because well, she think, was very, very memorable. Well, after, after uh, The Prisoner, she did the whole IT, ITC route. Man in a Suitcase, The Champions. Um, she was in Special Branch with uh, Darren Nesbitt. Uh, various other 
you know, TV plays, Saturday mm. Night Theatre, that kind of thing. And then kind of one-off episodes, like Softly Softly, uh, Task Force, uh, The Professionals, which I think you've seen her in an episode. I saw an episode of that. I, I know that is. Yeah. Uh, she was in Minder, Crown Court. Possibly she was just uh, preferred the theatre. I would, I would expect so. Looking at her television credentials, her final television performance was in the House of Elliot. And she was in one episode. And that was in 1994. So that's over, you know, 25 years ago. There's another thing we, we kind of not really touched on with this episode is that the 1966, when this was shot, earlier in the year, in March, there was a landslide victory for the Labour Party. Mm. And Harold Wilson became Prime Minister. Yes. Now, you, we've seen this recently dramatised on, uh, on The Crown and the fears of the establishment of having this incumbent Labour Prime Minister. There are, you can maybe draw some comparisons with having number six being brought into power and knowing that it doesn't matter who's in power, the game is never going to change. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, it's interesting that if, uh, if, if this was written within the shadow of the Labour election victory, then this is what McGoon thought of that. Possibly, that's another way of looking at it. Well, that's 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 quite that's uh, that's interesting in itself, isn't it? Because I don't, I've, I really don't quite know where McGoohan stands. I think his politics is not not so much a left or right. It's 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 more complicated. Objective than that. politics. Yeah, and not even centrist. Maybe he's looking at politics through a greater lens. Yeah, more just more from what humans are doing to one another, what humans yeah. are capable of doing to one another, as opposed to this, I, I, this I mean, policy will solve will be, this problem. I think it would be unfair to say, you know, Bagoon was this or this or this. Yeah. I, I, I think yeah, I think you're right. I think it has to be looked at a slightly different way. Yeah. And like you say, we can look at it for months and months and months and months. This is this is the episode that keeps going. Yeah. So that's all we've got well, time for. I think there's quite a lot to Yes, and you could, we could probably do another three or four episodes on on free for all. It's true, but there's still that the, we still have our solemn duty, old stick. Yes. Uh, what's the scores, old boy? I'm going to have to give this a six out of six. It's the, for me, it's the quintessential prisoner episode. Yes. I I can't really find apart from the speedboat. See, yeah, I, I was. Really find fault with it. I was going to give it. A, I was going to give it a five for that reason. That there's just this incongruous. But ultimately, it doesn't. It doesn't hurt anything. It doesn't take anything away from the from the sheer brilliance of it. Mm. I think it's. Uh, I suppose, in a way, as we were saying, if this had been a second episode, yeah, I think maybe the prisoner wouldn't have even lasted because there would have been such a sort of not a, an outcry, just yeah. people going, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! This is not what I signed up for, mate." Yeah. But at the same time, if a newbie was to say, "The prisoner, what's that all about?" This is probably the episode I would direct them to first. Yes, and and possibly checkmate. Mm. As, 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 as another one I mean are there any che- episodes I think Checkmate is probably a, a, an, an easier sort of access into because, yes. uh, but at the same time I think if you want to know what the prisoner is actually about watch Free For All it's about this yeah. and I think yeah. this this is where you're going to get the level of al- allegory that works mm. beautifully I suppose you could say that it just lacks so much hope it's such an incredibly sort of nihilistic uh, view of politics and which transcends pl- into modern day life doesn't it not just it does. Six's perspective but you're coming up to the the sort of the, the summer of 68 and all the violence that comes up with it but there was a slow burn running up to that mm. and I think this captures that sort of that just the kind of impotent anger and if you if you figure that McGowan wanted to make a seven part serial that basically detailed everything that he believed yeah uh, this is 
what he believed. I think in just one incredibly brutal but unforgettable episode. You can find us on Twitter at Free For All Pod or on Facebook at Podcast Free For All. And not to be one of those begging, insistent types, but uh, like, subscribe to your heart's content. Uh, it all helps spread the word. You are our advertising budget. So thank you very much. <laughs> Free For All podcast was presented by Kai Ross and Chris Bainbridge. The theme tune was by Gordon Milton. And special thanks to Jemima Duncar for the artwork. Please see, see you. you.